from the 17th chapter of the book of Exodus, beginning at verse 8. We are studying the book of Exodus, and we're looking at how the New Testament principle is pictured in the Old Testament illustration. So what you have established in principle in the New Testament, you have illustrated in an Old Testament story from time to time. And uh, tonight is a, a marvelous picture of that, an example of that. Then Amalek, verse 8 of chapter 17, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now I'm sure that you um, noticed that this is the first time that these people were commanded to go to war and some, uh, in, in, in Exodus chapter 14, as a matter of fact, God said, if you'll stand still, I'll fight for you. Now they're commanded to go to battle um, themselves. I think that uh, there are two fatal misconceptions of the Christian life, of which you and I are guilty. One is, is that when you become a Christian, everything becomes easy after that. There are no struggles, there are no problems, there are no difficulties, there is no opposition. And the second fatal misconception is, is that all we have to do is to become passive, to put our life in neutral, and just trust God and He'll do all the fighting for us. Both of them are fatal misconceptions. For the Christian life is a life of warfare and there are struggles and problems and opposition from the front of it to the end of it. And when you become a Christian, the problems and the struggles and the difficulties of life do not cease. As a matter of fact, when you commit your life to Jesus Christ, you commit 
to the, to, the, to the warfare you commit to the battle. Now I want you to put your finger here and hold the place, and I want us to turn to, the, to a passage that's familiar. It's the Ephesians passage in the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And there are many uh, New Testament passages that describe this struggle, this warfare that is um, characteristic of the Christian life, but none better than this one. So read along with me as I begin reading at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, Ephesians 6, 10. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish, extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, he describes for us the nature of the Christian life, nature of warfare, and a person needs to be constantly uh, prepared and armed for the warfare. But he not only describes the nature of the Christian life, he describes where victory is accomplished in the Christian life. Victory is accomplished in the warfare, in the prayer closet. So he says, after he describes to us how we're to be prepared for the battle, he, he, he says that we're to, to engage this battle in the prayer room, that is, in the prayer closet, and the victory of the Christian life is accomplished through the engagement of prayer. Now back to, um, by the way, uh, if you want to have a verse, have, a, have, a, have your hand on a verse we're going to look at, just turn over to Galatians chapter 5 and hold that and we go back to Exodus. Now I want to go back to the passage I read in, in the beginning and, and I want you to take a pencil and circle the word then, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Now you remember from um, last Sunday night, Sunday afternoon actually, oh fatal day, and uh, we talked about the smiting of the rock in the wilderness and water comes gushing out. And after the smiting of the rock and the water comes gushing out, then Amalek, at that time Amalek declared war on Israel. Now it may be that having heard that there was a plenty, plenteous supply of water out there in the desert, these Amalekites came to, to, to uh, fight Israel because that was always a, 
a reason for battle, a, a bone of contention, fighting over wells and water, which was in scarce supply in the wilderness. And word may have gotten out to the Amalekites that, that Israel had come into possession of this gushing stream of water. It'd be like uh, fighting over the oil in the, uh, you know, the salty desert now. So the Amalekites came and did battle against them. That would be the logical explanation of why they waged war at this time. But there is another explanation. Those people who like to deal in typology say that there's much more involved than that. For example, when you get over to the New Testament, you discover immediately that water is emblematic of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in the 7th chapter of John, If anyone first, let him come to me and drink. For if, a one, if one believes in me, out of his innermost being shall flow, shall gush rivers of water. And then John gave a little explanation of that when he said, Thus spake he of the Holy Spirit. And what he was saying is, is that water in the New Testament is emblematic of the Holy Spirit. If you'll turn now to the Galatian passage, chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17 reads like this, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Those who like to see uh, typology in the Old Testament will say that what is really underneath this story of this battle over water is really a an Old Testament typology, an Old Testament picture of the New Testament principle of the struggle of, uh, that, that, in, that we're engaged in, that we have conflict with, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Now Am Amalek was the grandson of Esau. In Genesis chapter 36 he is identified there. And what is happening here, says many, says some, is that that we're getting a picture of the fact that when a person becomes the possessor of the Holy Spirit and he's born of the Spirit, that at that moment begins the struggle that lasts for a lifetime. That is the struggle between the flesh and the Spirit so that the flesh pulls one way and the Spirit pulls the other. Now notice what... Uh, guarantees success in, in the battle with Amalek, regardless of what we, how we interpret that. Uh, notice what uh, is the means of success in the battle. Well, Moses said, now I'm going out on the top of the hill, and I'm going to take the staff of God, the rod of God. That was that rod that we saw back when, when Moses was called into, into uh, Egypt to lead his people out. And that rod of God is symbolical of the power of God. Now listen to me carefully. The only way that victory will ever be accomplished in the battle between flesh and spirit is that somehow entered into that battle, somehow brought into that battle, is the power of God. The arm of flesh will fail. Several years ago, in fact, it was my first pastorate uh, out of college. I was pastoring a little church in West Texas, and I uh, 
I started uh, a, uh, a jail ministry over in a little town called Roby, Texas. Crossroads of Opportunity. They got a sign. You come into Roby, Texas, it says Crossroads of Opportunity. My friend said, yeah, every town out of, every road out of that town's an opportunity. So it was Crossroads of Opportunity. And we went up in this jail, and every Monday night, I, I actually just really taught a Sunday school lesson to those guys, and they had this old guy who was always there as a trustee, totally, total alcoholic. I have never met a man that was absolute, hopeless alcoholic. Guy would drink anything. One day, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, sheriff sent him across the street to get something at the drugstore, and he bought, with the money, he bought some shaving lotion and drank it on the way back to the jail. Guy drink anything. Totally, totally helpless alcoholic. So one night after the uh, Sunday school lesson, we were kind of, you know, giving question and answer time, and he said, I've got a question. I thought, oh, mercy, he's probably going to turn over there to the book of Revelation and ask what that beast represents. You know, I'll be embarrassed in front of all my deacons. When he asked a question, he, he said, over in the book of Ephesians, it says something like this. He said, it says, that we struggle not or we battle not against flesh and blood, but against angels and powers and principalities. What does that mean? And I said, well, George, what that means is, is that our enemy is not somebody that we can see with our eyes or get our hands on. But our enemy is a spiritual enemy, and the battle with the spiritual enemy or enemies cannot be accomplished or won by any of the resources that we have as human beings. He said, you know, you are right about that. Now what Moses is saying is this, we have, a, we have this battle and we, it is necessary that we somehow lay hold on the power of God for the battle. Now the question is, how do you, how do you get the power of God into the battle of life? How do you do that? That is, how do you lay hold on the power of God for the daily battle? Well, the answer to that question is by prayer. Now listen to me carefully. The uplifted hand of Moses, the uplifted hand of Moses guaranteed them their victory. Moses, Joshua prevailed while Moses' hands were upraised. And those uplifted hands were emblematic of the supplicating of God. In other words, while he was supplicating to God, praying to God, the battle was being won. Now I want you to take your New Testament now and turn to the, tenth, to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. The 14th chapter of John. I want to read you one of the most striking and amazing statements Jesus ever made. Twelfth verse, chapter 14. Everybody needs to get this because I want you to, I don't want you to trust me, I want you to believe it. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Look at what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go to the Father. Now he makes two remarkable statements here. The first statement is, 
is that if you believe in Jesus, you can equal His works. Now, is there anybody here tonight who would say, well, yeah, I'm, that's me. I equal the works of Jesus. I, I'm, I'm equal. I do the works of Jesus equal with Jesus. Well, he says, if you believe in me, you can equal my works. Now, it's the same word he used when in John 3.16 he says that for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You believe that, don't you? That if you believe in Jesus, you'll not perish and have everlasting life. And you can do the flip-flop of that so that if a person is perishing and does not have everlasting life, it's because he's not believing in Jesus. Wouldn't you say that? that that's the flip-flop to that. This is yes. Would you agree with that? Thus... If a person is not believing in Jesus, if he, is not, if he is not equaling his works, it's because he's not believing in Jesus. That's what he's saying. He makes an even more amazing statement. He said, not only if you believe in me, you will equal my works, but you will exceed my works. Now, you know, I didn't, I didn't write it. I'm just, I'm just reading it and I'm interpreting it. Is there anybody here who would say that in your lifetime you have exceeding the works of Jesus? Uh, most of us would say now, I don't know what that means, but probably doesn't re, you know, refer to us. It probably is not applicable to us. He didn't mean it for us. He meant it for that day. You know, and there is a terrible discrepancy between the promises of God and the performance of man. And most of us will explain away the performance by saying that this wasn't, just doesn't apply to me. But the fact is that the Scripture says, Jesus said, that if you believe in me, you will equal and exceed my works. And how do you do it? Well, you've got to read the next verse. Look at the next verse. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, how in the world does a person who believes in Jesus equal and exceed his works by and through the ministry of prayer? Let me give you an example. Pentecost and those disciples who had been with Jesus all of, of his earthly ministry were in a 10-day prayer meeting and after that 10-day prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit fell upon Pentecost and 3,000 people, men, were saved so that more people were saved in that one meeting than were saved in the ministry of the life of Jesus. They equaled and exceeded His works through the ministry and the power of prayer. Matthew Henry said, when God gets ready to do something great, He sets His people to praying. Somebody went to, the, to, 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 to find out the secret of the Welsh revival. So many people were being saved in, in Wales. People be out in the, you know, fishing out in the sea. They come in and just fall on the, sea, on the, on the shore and, and accept Christ as their Savior. So overwhelmed were they by the Spirit of God. Now somebody went in one of these meetings to find the secret of it. And a man stood up and said, there is no secret. Ask and you shall receive. Now here's, here's the fact. Here is the truth. Is that what Jesus is talking about is the same thing that happened in Moses' day, is that when people 
are committed to prayer, God's will and purpose and victory is accomplished. Now that's persistent prayer. The scripture says that Moses' hands grew, were heavy and, 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 and he couldn't hold them up. How easy, how, it e- how easy it is for us to grow weary of prayer. You, got, you know, keep on praying, keep on praying. And when God's people are committed to prayer and to pray without ceasing and to pray without fainting and keep on praying, then battles are won in the name of God. Now Moses was not left to himself. Let me show you something interesting. These people were praying for him. Moses was out there with his hands lifted up, but these people were praying for him and in behalf of him. And they were the channels through whom the power of God was flowing. Let me pause and say parenthetically, let me make a plea on behalf of the prayer ministry of this church. There are a lot of things that we do well here, I think. I think that what happens here on Sundays in this auditorium is unique and, and, and wonderful. But there is something we are not doing in this church that we need to be doing, and that is the ministry of intercession. I'm going to make a plea to you tonight to get involved in the prayer ministry of this church. You can go in that prayer room any hour of the day. It might be maybe 10 people a week go in there to pray. Now, I know that you can pray anywhere, anytime. You don't have to be in a prayer room. And yet, there is a place unique at where the church comes and prays. You need to be a part of the prayer ministry of this church. Can't you give God one hour of intercession and intercessory prayer? If you be willing to commit yourself to a ministry to the ministry of intercession, you see my wife, she's got the list. She'll get you a key. Well, let me tell you something. The victory that this church will win will not be won by programming or, or church services, but when people are committed to prayer. Now, not only did they pray for him, they made it possible for him to pray. And so they put a rock for him to sit on, and they held up his hands. Um, I'm going to make a plea, not only for the intercessory prayer ministry, I'm going to make a plea on behalf of my ministry. Now, there are a lot of things that, that I, you know, I, I can do and should do and must do as a pastor. But there is nothing that I do that would be any more important to your survival and the survival of this church than to pray. And I won't have time to pray and to prepare if I have to do all of the other things that you know, go on in church life. And I'm going to ask you to consider the fact that there's some of the burden that you can take from off of the shoulders of the pastor to give him time for prayer. And the most important thing that I'll do in this, this week will be to prepare for this sermon next Sunday for what I do in this pulpit and to get a hold of God in prayer. 
And there's nothing any more important you can do for me than pray for me. I, I was looking through my files this week. Let me, let me read something. True story. One night at midnight, Mrs. Ed Spaffer was awakened and burdened for missionary friends, Reverend Jerry and Mrs. Rose in Dutch New Guinea. They were working, these missionaries worked among the Stone Age culture people. She was so burdened for him, she prayed and next morning wrote a letter telling about it. Later it was learned that he received prayer letters from five prayer partners in five continents saying they prayed for him on that specific occasion. By adjusting the dateline and time span, it was seen that they all prayed at the same time. At, the very, at that very time, Mr. Rose was standing with his arms tied behind his back, and a huge Stone Age savage was standing before him with a spear ready to pin him to the ground. As five prayer partners on five continents prayed, another man in the tribe, there were no Christians in the tribe at the time, spoke to the man and he walked away. Dr. Spafford said, asked, could God have made him walk away without the prayer partners? God can do anything he wills, but would he? I don't think he would have. I think it was his desire and will to continue the life of Jerry Rose on earth as a witness through his prayer partners. Now the point of this is, is that there are people tonight who are literally clinging to life and clinging to their ministries by, the, by their fingernails and will only survive if we pray for them, if we're faithful to pray for them. Your pastor is one of them. And the strength that comes in prayer in, in the prayers of God's people is essential. Now there's a banner. Let me mention this and we're through. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisai. It means a standard or a means of identity. It pictures a group of people gathered around a banner, not always a flag, sometimes just a pole. So God is our banner. He's our gathering pole. He's our flag of victory. He's our identification. Um, Someone has suggested that when Moses stretched out his arms, it was the first symbol in the Old Testament of the cross. Thus, the banner that identifies us is the banner of the cross. And we are identified as the people of God, as the people of the cross. It's our rallying place and our means of identification. There are two applications. I want you to get these before out. we're out. Because there is a warfare, we need to stay
Remember what Amalek did to you along the way. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses um, reciting to the people, reminding them of um, what has happened to them in the past and how they're to uh, live their lives in the promised land. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt? Look at this. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. Now, whatever else that says, it says this. That the people who came under the attack were the people who were straggling along behind, who were the farthest away from the banner. You need to stay close to God. Young people, tomorrow you will encounter temptation, the war, the struggle of the flesh against the Spirit. You need to get close to God and stay there. And you'll go to work tomorrow, you'll in, be engaged in your business, and there'll be all kinds of assaults come against you. You better draw near to God. That's the only place of safety. Second application. God saves us from the power of the evil one. He said, I'm going to blot out the memory of Amalek. And then he says that this war will go on from generation to generation. And the implication of it is this, that he saves us from the power of the evil one. And ultimately, he will save us from the presence of the evil one. And there is coming a day when there'll be no more Amaleks. And there'll be no more wars against the flesh. For we'll be saved from His very presence. And we'll never, ever have temptation again. Let's pray together. Our Father... Teach us tonight the importance, the value, the necessity of drawing near to you and of staying near to your heart in prayer. Give us such an awareness of the power of the evil one that our desire would be to stay near your great heart to be people of prayer, to be convinced that there are those who will not make it unless we pray for them. Indeed, we'll not make it ourselves without becoming people of prayer. For I ask in Jesus' name and pray it for His sake. There are three invitations tonight, an invitation for you to come to know Christ, maybe for you to come tonight to say, I, I want to be involved in the prayer ministry of this church. I'll make a commitment to be an intercessor. Sign me up.
to rededicate your life, to join this church, whatever God leads you to do. Would you come to do it while we stand to sing?